Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the smoothest glass of Amarula for your mind. Two crickets and a thorn tree. I'm your host, Nicholas Larimer, and today I'm, of course, joined, as ever, by the other half of your hosts, Mr. Gabriel Krauser. And, yeah, we are back recording on a Sunday evening, well after, or not well after supper time, but slightly after supper time. Uh, we've both had an active weekend participating in the um, machinations of the Grand Council of the IRR, which is our, uh, it's been described, I think, as our Politburo. I thought it was like the Fellowship of the Ring. Whatever. <laughs> you, can, you can find many uh, uh, allegories for it, but uh, yeah, it was quite interesting. Um, but we have a couple of things it, to talk about. It, it was. Can I say my favorite thing about it was what I said? Yes. I mean, I'm not surprised, but go on. <laughs> it is actually a summation of what a couple of other people have been saying. Um, and I just wrote it down because I was like, I've, I've so often found myself comparing, talking about the teleological paradox, this idea that if you directly aim for something, then you often miss. And it's so cliched to observe that about happiness try and be happy and you're probably going to miss it. Like many people would say, if you're, if you're single and you want to get married, you don't want to just date anymore. If you try and focus on finding a wife or a husband, then you're bound to just make the wrong judgment and get stuck in another silly relationship that lasts a few months. You have to hop out. But if you kind of let go of that and just go about your life, you'll... You'll fall in love. Spontaneity is a real example. That's like definitely the case. Um, it's not just contingent. If you plan to be spontaneous, then you can't be spontaneous. And and often I feel like the thing there's a teleological paradox to do with um, race relation stuff, like quotas. Like if you try and aim at making demographic representativity. Then you just make it worse. Like you, right. you create you create like a zero sum game economy that actually ends up shrinking, which means it's harder for the previously oppressed group to get through the the legacy barriers. You know, so the legal barriers and the esteem barriers are gone. It's no longer, um, but but there are legacy barriers, and and to get over those, you need a dynamic growing economy. But you don't get that because you've got the silly quota system. So there's like this teleological paradox where you kind of just aim for making the most amount of money as a society, and that'll probably give you a much better chance um, at overcoming the legacy barriers of something that wasn't about money and it was about color. So I so I still think that holds. But I thought that there was uh, that it gets an even nicer. Um, symmetry the analogy gets a better fit when you talk about diversity if you compare diversity to happiness because the thing about happiness and diversity is that if you're very if you're in grade five mentally you can think they're always good you know the most the better <laughs> always more is is better and and probably a lot of people kind of think that between grade five and sort of grade, I don't know, definitely the periods of adolescence where one goes through thinking that. But a lot of adolescence is like, oh, storm and drung is delicious and it's so important to not just be happy and superficial and fake. You've got to be real, sometimes being real. And they're actually right, right? Happiness is not for all the time. 
and uh, and the more the better is like definitely a drug addict's recipe for disaster. Right. And the same with diversity. Uh, there are different um, uh, axes to evaluate diversity. Like if you're if you're coming up with a maths Olympiad team, you don't necessarily need a huge diversity of IQ. You probably want a very homogenous kind of maths. <laughs> <laughs> so there are you know diversity is like happiness like it's definitely a good thing in some context at some levels on some axes um but it's not good in itself it's good if it's if it's really a byproduct of achieving something very interesting and important uh so you've got the teleological paradox side because it's best to come as a byproduct rather than something you aim for and also this sort of layer an intersection side where it's like it's sometimes good and sometimes neither good nor bad and sometimes actually if you if it's if it's being triggered if it's a byproduct it's probably um probably a warning sign uh that something's going wrong anyway so i kind of feel like we yeah there was this really diverse group of people having a an interesting debate about diversity uh what it means and when it's good when it's bad and so on and so forth and, and i felt like well the fact that there even is this this thought that there can be good diversities and bad diversities um, rem reminds me of happiness. It's like happiness. Mm. Mm. So I, and that made me happy. Isn't that funny? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm very good. You know, whatever works for you, I suppose. Um, <laughs> I would like to read a series of tweets because I don't know where else to put this. Um, it is by... Uh, well, I'll tell you who it is by afterwards. Anyway, this is one of those rare people online because at the moment it's very difficult to be a fan of Amber Heard, as we talked about last last time. Uh, yes. The, the, unless you are in a very specific slice of the world, and this is someone from that slice of the world. Uh, this person tweeted, Captain Jack and Pirates of the Caribbean have whitewashed and erased slaves and slavery from the 18th century Caribbean, where its practice was probably the most cruel in the world. Pirates were far off, uh, were often far from freedom fighters the film portrayed, but were slaveholders themselves. In case you needed another reason to hate Johnny Depp, the Pirates franchise is deeply racially problematic. In some, even the fictional character Depp's fans love and think is a real depiction of Depp himself is almost certainly a racist sociopath. And this was not tweeted by some random person on Twitter. It was tweeted by Michelle Dorber, who is a professor at Stanford University in the United States. <laughs> um, uh, there was a lot of people making fun of this particular tweet, but uh, I think my favorite was, uh, yes, I see they depicted slavery wrong in this movie about undead skeleton pirates and fish monsters. <laughs> Dude, I mean, they have slaves in that movie, right? Or in one of them. My favorite one is the one where there's the... Sh the, the okay, guys, you know, spoiler alert. Uh, for all the... For like a 15-year-old like film or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> and my favorite one, golly, golly, golly. So it came out in 2006, I think, mm. or 2007. And it's like the second or third one. And I think it's Price of the Caribbean and the Dead Man's Chest. The main plot right. idea is that there, there is this ship and it sails. It's able to sail underwater. And I think it's the one led by the fish monster. 
who yes. I don't know is is that yes. racist? The, the, the he's... octopus, the octopus monster. Yes, his beard is like <laughs> octopus tendrils, which is great, great yes. conceit. Um, and and the thing is that there's this beautiful love idea where like every seven years, Orlando Bloom's character, I think, who's on the ship can can go and and his sort of body rots in the water as he's underneath but it keeps going but every seven years he can be corporeal and he can go on land for between sunrise and sunset and so once every seven years he goes to hang out with kira nike um and they have like presumably a day of full of scootly pooping which i think is the youtube like the <laughs> the pg 13 so word so uh, I see. Uh, uh, you're you're sort of mashing the plots together, but yes, you've got you've got the right idea, roughly. Anyway, there was this. There was just this one. It was so depressing, and I just broken up. I was like being broken up with by this person that I think we discussed on the show, who's become like a a, a, a mobile Twitter warrior and a wonderful person. Uh, but uh, yeah, who who makes arguments that that displease me? Um, but I was so angsty, and I loved the fact that in this movie like out of the hour and a half of a movie, only five minutes of it is on land. And most of it's like in the sea and it's tumultuous and there's no, there's no home. There's no stability. There's no genuine happiness because even when the happiness moment happens, you're being deprived of it. And there are all these like underwater sea slaves. And I felt like this is high school. This is the only, these people <laughs> understand. <laughs> Anyway, uh, as it turns out, I was exaggerating my own suffering, but that suffering was worse <laughs> than any slaves. I mean, these guys were literally rotting corpses underneath the water that couldn't do anything excepting like row and murder for this guy for all eternity. I mean, some of them have been there for like 150 years. At least slaves could die. And let us remember, in the words of another great sort of high school movie series, there is something worse than uh, death. And it's like a, it's like an infinite life. Of suffering and torture and so on. Anyway, Indeed. there's my there's my. You can cancel me because I said there's something worse than slavery, uh, and I and I oh, said man. it through the words of J.K. Rowling herself. The 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 the, the prime evil these days. Oh, okay. <laughs> anyway, so as ever, our uh, our universities are. I think at least some of them are not sending their best, despite the fact. That they are that they should really know better uh and i must say it is amusing that like twitter one of the funny things about twitter right is that it's the greatest place to learn about how insane everyone is because it's so easy to tweet and because it's like you know you've had a bad day and you're kind of bored so you just go sit down on your phone you want a dopamine rush Right. Yeah. You can tweet out whatever half-baked opinion you you have, and people will hold you to it for the rest of your life. So you have to defend it to the death, no matter how half-baked it was. <laughs> and uh, it's a great way to to lose respect for any celebrity you like is to follow them on Twitter because they will inevitably do something that you find displeasing in some way. Um, <laughs> and I think, yeah, it might be it might be that part of the reason I'm still quite sympathetic to Elon Musk. Um, and you are not, is that you, you have been on the Twitter, whereas I have not. I'm yeah, not look, sure. Look, he's, he's, he's pretty funny on Twitter. I mean, he's got a great sense of humor. 
I, I, I just, like I said, it's not really a only... dislike. He's just sort of gives me a bad vibe. I like this thing. Okay, so, I mean, obviously the Stanford professor, the, the really crazy thing is that, you know, you've got this trial about substance and domestic violence and and the and uh, taking advantage of the Me Too movement to try and um, gouge a lot of money and all kinds of things that are really very serious and conflating like an actor with the character that they play is just the start right. out really it's it's um, it's, it's like the it's like the academic way of taking a really childish cheap shot yes and uh, anyway it's it's it that what I what I'm trying to say is that it's remarkable to me how often when you see a uh, a sort of as the kids might say, galaxy-brained take, such as this, something that's far too clever for us mortals. It almost always comes from someone who's a senior professor or academic at some illustrious institution. And it does make me a little bit worried for the uh, future of civilization. But uh, that's a discussion, well, I think, perhaps for another day. Yeah, I mean, okay, let's not get too sidetracked. And I, and I, I, I do feel a little bit cheated by the fact that after we last podcasted, um, I we we mentioned the Amber Heard Donny Depp trial, and I really hadn't gotten into it very much. And subsequently, I did get into it a bit. I was sort of sucked into it finally by my dear lady. <laughs> after it was over, or as it was well, coming to its conclusion. No, as it was coming to its conclusion, and then especially after it was over, hmm. because then I wanted to figure out. Okay, this verdict has been drawn. Um, it's fair for her to say that she had some grievance, but it was not fair for her to say that she suffered physical violence. Um, that was a that was not just unfair, but it was a defamatory lie. That's the verdict. And so she gets punitive damages and, and a fine big enough to bankrupt her, as far as I can tell. It's like, it comes down to if you net it out, uh, eight and a half roughly million dollars that she has to pay him. And she is only worth about that much. So... So my sort of hot take is that I will repeat, I was, I really was a kind of, an, I was a fanboy of the Rum Diaries movie where they met each other and fell in love. I, yeah, all the things, Hunter S. Thompson was Johnny Depp's friend. It is Hunter S. Thompson's only really, I think, good story to adapt into a film i'm not such a fan of fear and nothing in las vegas um great fan as a book the movie sort of really feels like it's letting me down whereas the rome diaries it feels like the movie's doing about as well because it is so cinematic and amber heard is so hot and she was like a lesbian at the time that's the only thing anybody knew about her and then she fell in love with johnny depp and they got married and the and the it just it was just a very it was very very simple it wasn't the most emotionally complicated it, it was kind of my favorite story about a journalist actually most of the journalism movies were like spotlight i would say spotlight was the best of the alternative where you've got a really heavy bit of subject matter a true story of journalists holding the powerful to account by penetrating a shroud of silence grabbing important facts putting them in the public square and that changing the world but it's very 
talking heads you know good night and good luck is kind of the ultimate extreme of that it's just like quite easy for a lot of people to fall asleep to and i feel very invested in it because it's it's the sort of career path that i'm on but rum diaries felt like this this holiday romance this sort of reminder of uh, a childish or, or or adolescent idea about what journalism could be and I suppose maybe that's why it had a that's really why it had a personal resonance is that it it felt so easy to it felt so charming like a like a distant memory and and almost a funny joke like it's funny that anyone could ever think it could work out that way um and and sweet anyway I thought that was I thought that her 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 work in court was even better and I don't mean that as like she was definitely lying or whatever but like the 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 way that the world these five second videos focusing on <clears throat> I mean when the uh, jury instructions or something was being read out there's like the zoom in on Amber Heard writing things down and then you see that there's a gap between the pen and the pad right she's not writing anything down she's just making the motion so that the jury thinks she's writing something down that's like a very tangible example of pure performance um and there were and there were sort of more oblique and less tangible ones and i don't think that that's wrong um i've been in court and i've definitely seen uh what well, could be a sign of, of just kind of generally being nervous i guess you know exactly kind of and a way of channeling right, those because you're like yeah. uh i don't know what's gonna happen i doodle um I, but the facial expressions, the way, especially the thing that I liked about her performance is, is this thing about how beautiful women on camera know not to move their faces very much, not to create lines or contortions or anything that, you know, the flat plane of skin is really what um, what works. Um, and so frowning or crooking the mouth, bringing the corner of the lip up, um, scrunching the nose, all of these kinds of things are are just not the kinds of things that 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 very beautiful women often do, um, and they're often the kinds of things that comedic actresses do. And by the way, the same kind of thing is true for actors. Although I think amongst the dudes, you've got more range actually, um, and the the ultimate uh, plastic faces is probably Rowan Atkinson's. You like you, you, Indeed. and Amber Heard doesn't quite go all the way to Rowan Atkinson levels of like rubber, rubber nose and lips and jaw, <laughs> like scrunching and elasticating, but she for, goes really for, far. For a she prime a example of that range. phenomenon, yeah, I'd suggest uh, the Top Gear interview with Rowan Atkinson from a couple of years ago, where he's asked to say several words, including the word petrol pump which he says, as only Rowan Atkinson can say, humor entirely through the manipulation of one's face. It's amazing. It's such an instrument. So I think she played her instrument really well. I really do. I really thought it was pretty stellar. I think it's her best work. And I think it's some of the best work I've seen in the, in the 21st century on screen. And so that's that's sort of my hot take. And and you're there never, is a you're never gonna stop being an art critic, are you, Gabriel? <laughs> <laughs> and I think that I kind of I kind of do hope that one day they kiss and make up and and say that this is all like Joaquin Phoenix's you know, Joaquin Phoenix is the interview movie where he went around like for nine months, he was just a complete nonce. 
in in the Hollywood circuit and doing interviews in, like with sunglasses on and smoking cigarettes where you're not supposed to and being rude and all kinds of things. And then it turns out there was a secret camera following around the cameras. So you could make a documentary movie about what it would be like to take advantage of your fame and just be a really bad dude. I kind of feel like, wouldn't it be great if Johnny Depp and Amber Heard are like, lols, we just wanted to entertain you guys. And we've actually been filming you while you were filming us. And we've cut together a documentary and we're getting married again. And we were actually secretly married the whole time. And this is just a great <laughs> uh, ultimate prank. Yes. Like, <laughs> like, so that's not I mean, going to happen. I'm, uh, there's no doubt in my be, mind that's not going to happen. Would be a, that would be a... Um... Uh, uh, I think that would be possibly the greatest celebrity prank of all time, if that was pulled off. Yeah, no, I mean it. It would. It would be. It would finally get to the level of being able to compete with some of the orgies of of the sort of high Roman era, like some of the amazing sort of shenanigans that those guys pulled off, and the pies made with ten thousand bird songs tongues, and uh, you know this. It would be. It would be. So anyway, I I, I like that. Um, side of it i also like the side of it the, in other words the side of it where you just take it on its face as a theatrical performance because i think in a way that is how most people engage and i think in a way the new york times columnists and the today i was reading in the sunday times and the man and guardian like you know <sighs> everyone who hates, hates amber hood is just um another misogynist like I don't think that's fair, but I do think it's fair to say that that a significant proportion of people on both sides are really not engaging with the facts of the matter. They are engaging with this like a kind of cosplay, team sport, sort of virtual reality, two gladiators in the ring, but they're not fighting with swords, they're fighting with words and gestures and uh tears and tonal inflection they it's theater sports it literally is the world's yeah, greatest so we, theater sports <coughs> theater sport I, level. i said and this I, actually as well to some yeah. friends recently you know people are like oh romans so barbaric they've watched people fight for fun nothing has changed <laughs> <laughs> Dude, and I think it's good to it's good to admit that. And then on the factual side, yeah, I got into it, but let's not get into that. On the factual side, I did get into it, and I'm afraid that as much as I wanted to be on Team Heard, from a factual perspective, the more I got into it, the more, the more <laughs> profoundly you know, disappointed really I was. Like uh, I wanted to be her. Your desperate yeah. desire to be a contrarian would have led you very far astray, I think, in this particular case. <laughs> no, dude, it's, it's she's so bad. She's so bad. But, like, I wanted to – I would love to be the guy. Like, I, you know, I could write the op-ed that, like, vindicates her, and then she could, like, fly me to her secret lair in Argentina, and we could go tuna fishing together, and, you know, we could discuss – the merits of Hunter S. Thompson's sort of early work and how misunderstood he is. I felt like I felt like there were moments where I felt like there could be a friend. <laughs> and if she and if and if she won on appeal and got vindicated in my article, you know, then she could donate millions of dollars to the Institute of Race Relations. Hey man, <laughs> if you could swing that, I'm down for it. 
But um, no, yeah, but the no, facts think, just don't I think, bear I out. think the facts, yeah, the facts are not really in your favor in that one. Uh, oh, she should rather she should rather get Elon Musk to give us money though than the American Civil Liberties Union. That's for damn sure. Um, but anyway. Okay, so as per, as is our style, we've gotten a bit sidetracked here. Um, something I just kind of want to briefly uh, waltz through. Uh, I don't know how much we really have to say on it, but I think it's kind of interesting. Is uh, we've been having these so <clears throat> in a sense, the biggest story in South Africa is the decline of the ANC. Right? Is it declining? If it's declining, how fast is it declining? What comes afterwards? Uh, that kind of stuff. Right? So we've had some. We've had some by-elections which have given us a little piece here and there of um, of what might be happening. It's kind of difficult to really work out what's going for by-elections because by-elections tend to have lower turnout. They tend to be... Um, they're not always a great representation because for a by-election, the parties can focus all of their resources on one specific area. So that often benefits... Some of the more determined smaller parties that are better organized, like the EFF, the DA, um, and 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 dis uh, and hurts the ANC because normally the ANC is able to put sort of a moderate amount of effort everywhere, um, as opposed to a high amount of effort in the small place. And I think the one thing we can say for sure from the various by-elections we've had in the last what twelve months is that the ANC is in, what's the word, big trouble. <laughs> because they are... Big doo -doo. <clears throat> doo -doo. There are some exceptions. The Eastern Cape, Mpumalanga, and Limpopo. There, the ANC, it's like basically in the same place it's always been. Uh, in fact... In the no, Cape, dude, it's, it's not. Been. It's not the same. <laughs> Sorry, Nick. Isn't it the case that in those provinces, like getting 90%... Was not only not unheard of, like in most wards, it was getting 90% 10 and 15 years ago. And so now it's getting like 70 to 80% and often just 60%. But that is like a huge shift. It's just that they started at 90 So in Limpopo, in Limpopo and in some parts of Mpumalanga, that is true. But uh, yeah, it was been... not actually, yeah, yeah. I was, I yeah, was thinking there was like UDM and stuff like that, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, and and I guess uh, to clarify my point more specifically, uh, Limpopo and Pumalanga, they haven't seen a drop since like 2016. Right. You know, these are places where they used to get 90 and then the EFF and some of these smaller parties popped up and then they started getting 75. That's really the, the, the big difference. Um, so they seem to kind of be holding that mostly. I mean... Uh, uh, last week there was an election in a place called um, place just on the, the the can't remember the area. Um, you know where Mpumalanga sort of goes up to meet Limpopo and Gauteng. It's like a sort of weird arm that comes up uh, and sort of sticks into. It's like a salient. It yeah. Sticks into Limpopo. Anyway, that's where one of the by elections was, and the ANC got seventy percent there. Uh, yeah, that was the one. It. So there were like four by-elections this week. They won yes. one. That's the one they won. Yeah. Oh, they won two. They, they, they won two. Then they yeah. won one in KZN, but it's one of those ones where it sort of goes between the IFP and the ANC and the, the 
ANC beat the IFP by, I think it was literally 30 actual votes. Yes. Uh, which, which is which is <clears throat> why we really need to put more effort into putting pressure yeah, so, on the IEC to be good because we are getting to that stage of democracy where like where a single vote, vote can can yeah. turn the results of things. So in this particular case, there's a regional KZN party called ABC. They're not only in KZN, but it's the only place where they actually get proper support. I, I actually saw some posters for them in Joburg, um, but they didn't do well anywhere outside of. Uh, uh, KZN. So <laughs> in this KZN ward, the ANC got 755, the IFP got 725, so 30 less, and ABC got 722. <laughs> so wow, so it's three and three. Yeah, that's really, really close. Uh, <laughs> and oh, Dude, I, I wouldn't be surprised. When those results someone... become common knowledge in that little area, like there's a lot of like tension around the dinner table because... Right, who voted your, for your, what? Your 19-year-old daughter just said that she wasn't feeling well that day and she wasn't going to vote. And you're like, ah, that... You see, you see. <laughs> yeah, and in case it in, uh, a little bit of tension around the dinner table can be a little bit more explosive than other parts of the country, I think, sometimes. Yes, I was, I was. But <laughs> let's, let's veer away. Okay, so there's that one. And then the next one. So here's the really fascinating three. There's one in the Northern Cape in the tiny place called uh korea Karna, something, like something like that anyway Kara, it's near carnarvon carnarvon it's it yeah. is carnarvon uh tiny carnarvon is in is in it something like that this is like basically the wild desolate deserts of of um this is where nicholas wanted Cape. to move almost where the where the where the so square mile array is yeah. <laughs> Exactly. They, exactly. they have the world's largest telescope, the sort of the kind of bat, the sort of conglomeration of bats that echolocate things, and then you hive mind the bats, and then you can see the center of the galaxy. That's where it right, is. Right, right. Um, so here, this is territory that the ANC has traditionally dominated. So uh, there were a couple of times when Cope made some inroads here, and the DA has always managed to get sort of 10% of the votes in these kind of places. But it's generally been an ANC stronghold. Well, they suffered a bit of an embarrassing defeat here. They went from getting over 50% of the votes down to 32%. The DA shot up from 13% to uh, 42%, which is quite something. And, and some of that is consolidation because there was a local party that used to hold a seat there uh, that holds at least one seat in the council that then voted for, with the DA. They appear to have collapsed themselves. Um, and the EFF also grew a little bit, taking stuff from the ANC. So this is, a, I think, the DA is something they're pretty happy with, uh, because this is this is an area of the country where the DA has long hoped to make some kind of inroad, but it just never happened. And so I think they will be fairly pleased by this. And it also means now you, that, the, yeah, sorry. sure, go ahead. Is did the DA ever specifically win that ward? Or that so the um, ward is. The ward, as far as I understand, the ward's been redistricted and changed quite a few times. So it's like not entirely the same thing as it's always been. But they've never, as far as I know, they've never done well in that area. Um, it's one of those places of the Northern Cape where the DAs always thought that it was going to do well and they just never did. Uh, but I'll, 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 I'll double check that. Actually Interesting. Uh, the reason I ask is because I saw this conflict between... There was this guy on um, 
ENCA, election specialist. Not my favorite chap. Often hangs out with Arden Basson. Can't remember his name right now. Anyway, an analyst with whom I have fault, found fault before. Um, but I'm sure trying his hardest. And he was saying that, I mean, he was so, his analysis uh, once all the by-election results was in was, you know, there's a great story for the EFF. They're on the rise. Not particularly good for the DA. They're pretty much flat everywhere. And where they've won, they've just managed to retake a little bit of ground that they lost. And um, so, so I've just went and looked up, yeah. looked up the, the area. And it's, it's, it's very difficult. So going back to 2000, it's very difficult to compare because this town is a small number of voters and it keeps getting its wards redrawn. So back in 2000, which is actually one of the high watermarks of the DA, interestingly, they got 50% of the vote in this area. Not, not the whole municipality, not just this ward, because this ward didn't exist. Then in 2006, they got 31% of the vote, and the ANC was up to 62. Then the ANC was up to 61. Then the ANC was down to 46. And then uh, a new party came in and seems to have split the DA in half, called the KCM. But that party now seems to have collapsed and joined back into the DA. So you could, if you look at the whole municipality, make that claim. But this particular ward... Um, Okay, that is not the impression. The impression he was giving, and I'm, I'm quoting him softly. I'm sort of paraphrasing. The impression I got was, so the DA had this had this lockdown in 2016, and then they lost it in 2021, right. no. and they managed to get it back now. So the DA has had basically nothing locked down in the Northern Cape. Uh, it's always been very fluid the voting there. You know, you've got very small electorates. So uh, uh, I mean, the, the, but the this sounds like one of the most fluid. I mean, this municipality, the way you've just described it, sounds like one of the most yes. fluid places in the country, which I guess yes. if if we were in America, people would talk about bellwether states and little districts that are really interesting to look at in terms of trying to seek out larger trends. Usually what, what they're doing there is they're saying, we recognize that most places on the map keep turning out relatively the same. Right. So Lopopo and Pumalanga, just it's just green each and every time. Cape Town for the longest time has just been just blue, etc. Right. So let's try and look at those places that sort of swap that around. swing here and there. Right. That is interesting to me. Yeah. And traditionally, it has been South Africa's colored areas that have been uh, the most unsettled, that have, that have changed political allegiances the most easily uh, swapped between parties. So they always are kind of interesting because I think they do sort of show the way the winds are blowing. But the other thing that DA will be happy about in this, in this by-election is that the turnout was way up, unlike all the other by-elections from the local government election last year. 70% or something turned out to vote in this ward. Now, that's not a lot of people. So the DA won 42% of the vote with 210 votes. Um, <laughs> that's not exactly the one. We are so deep in the desert, hey? Wow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, so it's, anyway, it's quite interesting. So I think they're pretty happy about that. Um, and maybe the Northern Cape will finally become the, the, the dog that barks because for a very long time, the DA sort of said, ah, oh, we're going to take the... If you go and you look back at their previous election results, every time they always say, we're trying to take the Northern Cape. We're trying to take Gauteng. And they always What's come that? close in Gauteng. Leonard Cohen's song, first we'll take Manhattan. 
Yeah. And then we'll take Berlin. It's like, first we'll take the Northern Cape and then we'll take the rest of the country. Right. This is our gateway uh, out of the Western Cape. This is how we break the cage and show that we're not just a one-party state, etc. And as far as I know, um, the PA, I think they did stand in this election and they did not do well, which is kind of embarrassing for them because the PA, <laughs> their strongholds are mostly actually in the desert, <laughs> amusingly enough. Uh, so you would have thought that they would have done better here. You would have thought they would have done better in jail. Prisoners can vote. <laughs> Sorry. They can. They can. It's true. <laughs> but uh, anyway. That's, Dead that's McKenzie's party. Number one. Okay. So, so, okay. So, so it sounds like what you're saying is um, genuine redoubt for the ANC in, in the, in the hinterland. What, can I just say my hot take on the on the hinterland story is that mm. I think there is something to be said for the following claim. I don't. I increasingly find myself looking back on R. W. Johnson's critique. R. W. Johnson, the Oxford Don, main you know chief writer at Politics Web, I'd say, um, wrote "How Long Will South Africa Survive?" twice. Got it right in 1977 because he said it, that that regime would last until about the early 1990s. Got it wrong in 2016 because he thought that the ANC wouldn't easily last out the decade or if they did, it would be by a year or two. And also thought the moment they had to borrow money from the IMF, they'd be toast, which of course right. COVID, it was an unexpected thing, um, uh, but it did create a situation in which they could borrow money. Our government could borrow money. From the IMF without uh, feeling well, terribly also, embarrassed by it. Yeah. I, do you think he saw, uh, he didn't see Ramaphoria coming? I don't think. I don't think he quite did. I think he's got a, I think he's got a little bit of a blind spot. But so he's got this, um, and, I, and, and I think you put your finger right on it. It's, a, it's sort of like, a, I don't, I don't believe in the good ANC, so no one else ever will kind of issue. Right. And, and, yeah. And polling seems to show that the, the the idea of the good ANC is a significant contributor to the uh, to the fact that the ANC is still the country's biggest party. Uh, you know, people. Yes. It really seems like they're voting now for Cyril more than they are for the ANC, not because they like Cyril more than the ANC. They do, but because the ANC is really bad, and Cyril's managed to convince them that if they just vote enough for the ANC, that he'll be able to be the ANC. Yeah, Peter Bruce voiced. Peter Bruce just the reason Peter Bruce has become South Africa's most quoted sort of uh, editor emeritus, most memed editor emeritus, is because he just gave expression to what other, what 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 to any outsider would seem like of just a flagrantly bizarre proposition that you know if you if you if you just vote more for us then we'll be better. <laughs> We are like an unloved child. We will improve with love and hugs and kisses on our forehead. And, and, and just to prove, I think, that the two of us, uh, I mean, uh, I speak for myself in this case, are not just biased against, you know, we always say don't vote for the ANC regardless of the circumstances. I didn't vote for the DA in 2019, not because I thought that all the other parties were so much better, because I thought the DA needed to be punished for the silly things it was doing. Yes. And... I was very happy because exactly it took a step back and decided to change up the way it was doing things. So it works. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
It just turns out, yes, <laughs> the whole incentive structure. I mean, the guys who the guys who cooked up like democracy as as a theory, they definitely started with the proposition that you don't vote for the team that's that's performing against your interests, in the hopes that they will change and perform in your interests, and then you'll give them your vote. They never they never envisaged. They didn't quite manage to get their heads as far up their own jumpers <laughs> as we managed to uh, a few hundred and a few thousand years later but but be that as it may the I, th I think that there is this sort of I think RW Johnson does get to own the 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 sort of tribalist line of like most South African analysts don't want to talk about the Zulu issue or the Cosa Nostra or the the quest the petty question etc because on the one hand you have i think this analysis is right in these ways um there's a great incentive on the part of the anc the tripartite alliance the eff etc to erase any cultural or linguistic distinctions as 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 politically or socially salient um, uh, w w amongst the broader black group. And, and there's a very strong incentive to sort of think of, 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 of blackness as being a sort of defining first identity, the first amongst all identity markers. And that puts you in a position where even considering the possibility that some people might be for or against Zuma because he's more Zulu than anything else in some ways is 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 going to be just very disturbing to your narrative and and this is not a, a, a South African problem this was totally a problem in the Soviet Union Stalin's rise uh, was very much the rise of a guy who wrote more lucidly and intelligently about these challenges and and sort of how to get around them than pretty much anyone else anyone else looking back there are contemporary uh, suspicions uh, that have subsequently gained a lot of weight that he wasn't doing all of the writing um but, <laughs> but that was his reputation are you, are you accusing uh, stalin of of uh, dishonest behavior i i will not sound for so <laughs> but that be okay well you know nick just pipe down okay <laughs> stalin stalin uh Stalin cannot be defended on the show. Okay, never mind. Anyway, point is that it's 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 always a, when you're trying to build movements, and particularly when you're trying to build movements with the idea of the government being highly interventionist and taking a lot of money and distributing it at itself. So there's a lot of force and zero sum thinking in the society. Then there are there are very great reasons to try and homogenize um, groups to try and ignore what otherwise might seem like delicious um differences uh, cuisine differences um that needn't be a source of tension uh they become very 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 dangerous and threatening to your political agenda so you try and squash them um and so there's definitely a kind of like blackness is all never mind the zulu Kosa, vendapedi tonga shangan kind of differences because uh, ah, that's very scary um and then I think that there's probably something like that from a sort of waspy 
uh, sort of quietly voted for the NP, then realized it's way too unfashionable sort of um, perspective, um, where there's just a sort of, yeah, a combination of white guilt and embarrassment and a sort of persistent sort of um, failure to recognize uh, interesting differences amongst other people and a, and a kind of embarrassment. And I think that's about talking about differences in black with uh, across black groups. And I think R.W. Johnson is very irritated by that. And he's quite right to be irritated by the fact that there's a sort of um, upper middle class. Uh, right. That, let me put it like this. People keep. So, so I was a DA politician for a while. Right. And people, your critics and your supporters would always come and talk about what are you going to do to win the black vote? There's no such thing. Exactly, exactly. As the black vote. <laughs> There's exactly. the small business township uh, 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 business owner. There's the domestic worker. There's the farmer. There's the unemployed person. There's et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. There's a thousand yeah. different Dude, things. Rich, poor. There's like a, a traditionalist right. polygamist. There's a Sangoma there's like exactly. a modernist who's all who's the, like all the, all the identities, right. oh my, yeah. all the identities that matter actually, that the way that yeah. people actually live their lives based off of rather than race. Um, and of course, I, I, I'm convinced that part of the reason that the DA has had problems picking up, quote unquote, the black vote is because it keeps trying to win the black it vote and not the small business exist. owner vote. Right. Yes. <laughs> You're you know. going after a, no, look, let me take that back. The black vote does exist. There are people who think of themselves as black. First and foremost, that's the main identity. Yeah, and they and all work at Wits University. They work at Wits. <laughs> they vote for the EFA. <laughs> they drive right, exactly. nice cars. They holiday in the Mediterranean. And they're like, <laughs> not going to vote for you. <laughs> right, exactly. Um, so... So I think I, I think that is one of the main reasons. So why you've that... totally helped me out. This 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 right. is exactly what I'm trying to say. There, there, there are there are people of all races who who think the DA should go after the black vote, and 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 R. W. Johnson is clearly very irritated with them at a very deep level, and so one of the things he likes to do is to talk about these tribal differences. So I don't think actually that. The tribal differences necessarily play out in the same way that he has often made it out to be the case. He's been know. like, yeah. I think it depends a lot. I think for some people, it is a significant identity that they take a lot from, uh, and not just Absolutely. you know, I like agree. a bunch of crazy ideologues who sit in who sit in universities, um, and yeah. and at the same time. Also not. I think it can be. I think you're right to say that it can sometimes be overstated for sure. Uh, so, I just think I think as a political obstacle to to changing one's vote, it's not necessarily what it's what it's made out to be. By him, I don't think that the that the ANC's. I don't think that the ANC's uh, trouble. Um, sits sits tribally in 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 that position. I think that it's 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 more real trouble is in is is what I think is right is that it's it's real tribal trouble is trying to 
render all linguistic and cultural differences somehow politically irrelevant. Like the competition between that right. um, uh, and its view that they're all irrelevant and like something coming up somewhere or another, that's for serious. But within, like, if, if it just in those moments, and it often is able to do this, where it can just incorporate it and say, oh, you've, you've got these delicious differences, this is fine, that's fine, and they, and they matter in these ways, but they don't matter in, the, in those ways, that all works out okay. I think that where the, 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 the kind of difficult moment for the ANC lies, so it's, it's, it's locked up the, the tribal hinterland in the far north, as you say, not so much in the Eastern Cape. And I suspect that part of that might be, this is my tribal reading, which is a little bit different to his. So I'm, I don't know. I'm, I'm saying that I do think it matters. I just don't think, he thinks it's all about Zulu versus Klosa. I think that, and maybe I'm unfairly representing, but that's the reading I've got. I think that the, the way that the ANC manages to hold on to Mpumalanga and Napopo is connected to the fact that I think tribally, South Africans from the rural hinterland over there precisely don't have a, a straightforward Zulu or Tosa connection, which is a which are very large groups, which are which are hmm. so large and so important historically, contemporarily, within the ANC, outside of the ANC, that it's as if South Africa needs them almost more than they need South Africa. You can sort of envisage we have talked about a kind of you know, Natalian Zululand secession. And you can kind of almost imagine after that a kind of Kosa secession. But in the north, it's these it's these far more disparate groups. The, the those are also the, the places the, where where economic conditions are often the most hopeless. It's the most hopeless and the most culturally disparate and splintered. And right. so, so the, the black so identity, like as opposed to the tribal identity, does seem to have an asymmetric, a far, a, a much more disproportionate weight, uh, attraction, gravitas, etc. And, and, and in a way, I kind of do just think of it through my Sinsterdian's high school lens of like, dudes from tribes to the north were often made fun of Whereas no one who was Zulu or Tosa ever got made fun of. And probably, yeah. and no one who was Sutu. Like, Sutu man, a little borderline. But like the guys from the north easily got teased for their language, for their um, culture. I've, I've actually seen interesting you know I mean? examples of this. I know of a, yeah, I know of a, a, a DA counselor who was, um, uh, he was a Tonga. And he was trying to operate in Soweto and get branches and stuff set up. And he was undermined and mocked and belittled by uh, Nguni people because they said, what's this, you know, sort of basically a foreigner yes, uh, coming here and telling us how we should be doing things. Uh, he thinks that he's so clever. Uh, he doesn't know anything about us. He must go away. And it was exactly... It was exactly what you're talking about there. So not just high school, also in Soweto. Okay, so so anyway, so it's just a theory about like maybe the tribal story is, and part of it is also I, my old friend who who's a bit Shangan from high school 
Um, I remember I was discussing it, you know, <laughs> before Ramaphosa. There were a few reasons in high school that we thought Ramaphosa would be the next president. Um, after Zuma, I mean, we were in high school when Mbeki was a president, but it was clear that his days were coming to an end. And then it was like, who's going to be next? And um, and my old buddy always liked the thought that it would be that you know that we had lots and lots of courses leading the ANC for a long time, and then finally it came back to Zuma for the first time in seventy years. And then after that, it needed to move beyond those two groups in order for the project to continue. So there's a sort of logic by which Ramaphosa had to become the next president because he is one of these northerners. And there is something to that which is always so unsaid. And anyway, maybe this is the segue to uh, to talking about Ramaphosa himself. But just to say, you know, the other two stories <laughs> are, as far as I can tell, on the West Rand of Johannesburg, the EFF did really do yes. well. So let, let me let me breeze through them real quick. Um, the EFF in a West Rand ward uh, went from got seventeen percent um, back in November of twenty nineteen. The ANC got fifty three percent. Sorry, not twenty nineteen, twenty twenty one. Wait, say that again because my brain, my brain. Oh yeah, okay. sorry, sorry. The ANC in the West Rand in this particular ward, it's Ward twenty nine, um, in in West Rand West City, got fifty three percent. In November of 2021, and the EFF got 17%. This time, the EFF got 54%, and the ANC 39%. Dude, that is a huge swing. That is a very, very big. It's like swing, a yes. 40 point swing or something. Yeah, yeah. No, that's yeah. that's a very serious win for them. And they see there wasn't independent running sometimes, so presumably, and and there wasn't this time, so presumably those independent voters then went to the EFF. Uh, and that helped them. But that's something the ANC should be very scared of. And I think the country should be a little bit scared of because uh, I, we both agree that an ascendant EFF is not exactly a great thing for the nation, especially for race relations. Um, but the other interesting one, and perhaps the most interesting one, was a Soweto Ward, Ward 53, um, which is on the western edge of Joburg, on the western edge of Soweto. So this ward 53, um, it's been pretty solidly ANC. Back in 2011, for example, this was like the heartland of the ANC in Joburg. Got 87% of the vote. The DA coming second with like 6% of the vote. 80 to 6, uh, huge. Sorry, and this is Soweto, right? Right. This is this is the west, western edge of Soweto, um, right on the edge of the Joburg municipality. Yeah. 2016, the EFF appears on the scene in this ward. They get 20%. The ANC comes down to 65. You know, it's not great, but there it is. Um, the, the ANC is still very dominant. Not as dominant as it used to be. 2021, the ANC, yeah. Yeah, the ANC drops by 7%, uh, getting 58%. Action SA pops into the scene, getting 14% of the votes in this ward. The EFF on 14% as well, slightly behind Action SA and the DA down to three. So clearly the ANC is eroding here and the DA has also lost some support probably to the Action SA block. Well, they just had a by-election in this ward and the ANC held it, but by an embarrassingly small margin. They got 31% of the vote <laughs> with the EFF coming in second place with 24% of the vote. So up by what, 8%-ish a little bit more. Action SA got about 22% of the vote. 
which is up by about sort of 7% or so. The DA went up by 1%, getting a couple more votes. And an independent appeared to take 19% of the votes in this ward. So the ANC lost to every single party it looks like in this place. And if something like this happens across uh, the Soweto in the next election in 2024, I think that this is a, you can't extrapolate out because, you know, of all the things I said at the beginning about by-elections. But if this result is repeated, and this is very rare, this, I don't think this has ever happened in Soweto before. Sometimes you get an independent who comes out of nowhere and wins a seat. But the ANC collapsing by 20 points in the space of a couple of months, I don't think has ever happened before in Soweto. If this happens in 2024, generally speaking across Soweto, even if half of this happens, the ANC is toast, just toast. It will hold on to those rural places, but in the metros, it will be a vanishing thought. They will lose Gauteng. They will lose uh, probably their majority in parliament as well. Yeah. And so yeah. this is a really important milestone, I think, because... And if you... And I would like to just... Give a shout out to Anthea Jeffries. Um, is it the People's War or is it BBE helping and her or hurting? One of the books. She goes through. She sort of comes through these um, newspaper reports and investigations by independent um, anti-apartheid groups, and finds very not conclusive, but very strongly suggestive evidence that about 1985, I want to say, is, let me just say, gacha, is more popular than Nelson Mandela in Soweto. I think it was 1975. Uh, 75, not 85. It's in, it's in, yeah, it's in People's War and it's in the, it's in the first chapter. I do remember it. And I found it very interesting because it's sort of exposed to me a kind of monolithic prejudice probably that I had in my mind like not prejudice but just just a sort of childish um, idea of of like if not all black people like all black people in Soweto must have always agreed that Nelson Mandela was the greatest hero ever and I was like, oh, wow, hold on. No, that's just, that's, I mean, that was for the most part true for all of my life. Um, right. In, in uh, 1995, that was almost certainly true. As a, yeah, as a general proposition, totally. But uh, not all, but, you know, most, whatever, some super majority. Um, but, but extrapolating backwards from that, it's silly and childish. And, and so there is this sort of, um, you can also tell, actually, one of the things that I might want to get late, get to later, if we get a chance, is going to be uh, an account by P.J. O'Rourke, the American sort of conservative libertarian writer who died earlier like this year. Uh, conservative. I think he was very firmly a libertarian. No, he called himself so conservative in the sense that he's, he's he, he thought you should smoke joints, but not in front of your parents. <laughs> yes. Well, he, and I'm, yeah, he, he called himself a Republican for sure. 
I see his point on that. You no, know, he he totally, but also hated the Republican Party. No, he, he he had a conservative bent insofar as he really did think that, like parents and and children should should um, engage right. through a lens of discipline. I uh, think I think he, than, he wrote. He may have yeah. written an article once where he he talked about the moral degradation visible in Hollywood, how it's like a bizarro nightmare world and how, despite the fact that, you know, he kind of thinks it's great to do some drugs and have wild sex and drink all that kind and of stuff, have a hangout. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There was still something he found utterly gross and disgusting about Hollywood. He believed in wearing clothes. Like, the, you know, you're supposed to, <laughs> you're supposed to put it away when you go into public and, and I, I can see his point by the way. Anyway, so um, he, he's he's writing about Ukraine in and Georgia in 1992, and he's sort of he's sort of saying things like, you know, even in Soweto, <laughs> things are better than this. Soweto, Soweto really is my experience of being in America. Soweto really is something that you can see from outer space. It's it's a place name that that resonates, not just in New York City. And Princeton University, but also in in sort of rural New Mexico. Um, if people know that South Africa is a country, then they probably know that Soweto is a place. So it does have a kind of resonance, and I think that that I'm I'm strongly of the view that that when something matters so much to outsiders, that's because it already matters so much to insiders, and it also enhances that fact. So I do think that there's a kind of resonance to to this result that you are highlighting. And I think it is super worrying to the ANC. Here's what the ANC's comeback argument is going to be. If I was an ANC um, campaign manager, I would say, look, you guys, let's, let's, let's use the analogy of war. You guys are trying to take my team out and you've had some successes. You know, you managed to you managed to blow up a little power plant. You managed to intercept a supply chain and steal 2,000 bags of, you know, corn flour and 20 tins of syrup. You guys managed to, you know, turn one of our low-level commanders against us and, and he told you secrets about where we keep the, the milk and honey Okay, you took the small village of who knows where and the whatnot and the why for. And you know what? I'll grant you this. You killed one of our standard bearers and you took one of our flags. But in fact, you didn't actually take the flag. You just killed the standard bearer. We've still got the flag. It's like a semi, you can't really claim a victory. You can try and claim some tactical uh, progress, but not really a victory. You guys are grasping at straws. And you know what you don't have? The nuclear option. You guys have guns and we have guns and you have tanks and we have tanks, but we've got nukes and you've got denada. So there is just no ways that we lose. And there is every ways that we win because we have like air supremacy and we've got nukes. And what is the nuclear option for the ANC? It's not, um, I don't mean some destructive force. I mean, in pure campaigning terms. They have the it factor. They have Cyril Ramaphosa himself, the single most popular person in South Africa. Most popular politician in the country by miles. By, by miles. Miles. I was polling shows. 
like like Julius Malema has some people like, really love him, but most 20, people really love him. 25% of the country, yeah, 10%, 20% of the country actually thinks he's amazing. The EFF could really grow. The EFF is underperforming. If you look at our polling on Julius Malema's popularity, he is more popular than the EFF by a bit. I think largely because of the VBS scandals and because of like the fact that he's popular amongst people that aren't going to vote because they're so disillusioned with the whole process. They're so anti-democracy. They're so profoundly fascist that they're like, you you go and steal the power. We don't believe in this voting thing in the first place. So some of those voters are slightly useless to have. And by the way, I, I think a lot of EFF voters, actual people who voted for the EFF, uh, would would much rather vote elsewhere if they just knew what the EFF's policy was. Um, if they, uh, be that as it may, Judas Menemer's net rating, in other words, if you take the proportion of people that are in favor of him and the proportion of people that are against him, huge negative net rating. If you take John Steenhazen, it's like 40% of Most the country. Most people don't know who he is. They don't know. <laughs> but, which... For the DA, is a very big problem. <laughs> <laughs> and by the way, it's not true for Malema or Ramaphosa. Like, everybody knows who that guy is. Half of yeah. South Africans don't, they can't tell you who John Stiernes is. You, right. And then you tell them, this is John Stiernes, and they're like, I'm st I still, I don't know who that is. Um, and then of those that are left, it's, it is more negative than positive. Not by all that much, but it is by, it's not as intense as with Malema. The, right. Either the He's love or the hate. Polarizing, right? Yeah, but 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 uh, uh, it, you know, I think it's like twenty four and twenty three against something like I can't remember. I'm I'm, I, I'm <clears throat> saying numbers that express the vague memory of my <laughs> right of, of my foolishness. But Ramaphosa, sixty sixty five percent of the country love that guy. Yeah, it's just, there really is no one else like him. He is twice as popular as the ANC on our polling. You ask people, do you think the ANC is doing a good job? Do you think Ramaphosa is going doing a good job? And you find, so they've got Ramaphosa. Now, the other big news of the week <laughs> is the Arthur Fraser has come out with these allegations that Ramaphosa is guilty of a crime. So this is this is just from a strategic point of view i struggle to see how this is anything but a nightmare for the anc so okay i'll try and give you if i was an anc campaign manager here's how i would spin it to the donors like i wouldn't say this to the public but i'd say to the donors look guys here's how the anc wins you need peter bruce has was was very very you've got to vote for the anc in 2019 in order to bring out the best in it and gabriel krauser wrote a piece in the sunday times saying that this is a ridiculous argument and that peter bruce probably doesn't believe it himself and that he's probably voting for the da and that he will turn against ramaphosa before anyone else and gabriel's right about mm. all of this stuff so <laughs> we should continue to pay attention to what he says and try to manage the message <laughs> so that it doesn't get out. Whatever that guy's saying, try and not let people hear it. <laughs> and, and and for those who don't keep abreast of everything that Peter Bruce writes, he has turned against Sororaposa. 
yeah for a long time now and just more and more vociferously and i'm very happy about it like please don't send this to him because he might because he's it's let him continue <laughs> in his course <laughs> don't want to distract from matters um but so what I would say as an ANC manager is that the ANC does really well if the Peter Bruce argument comes back, that the ANC is split and that what you need to restore and maintain stability in South Africa is to keep the ANC because the alternative is going to be very confusing and chaotic. And so you need the ANC to win to keep stability and you need the good ANC to win. And so you need to keep voting so that the good ANC can win. So the cover of the Sunday World today says that um, a bullet was put in a package and delivered to the presidency. Uh, and that there's, you know, and it's and there was a letter saying, you know, if you guys pursue the Zondo Commission's evidence and start prosecuting people, right, basically, we're going to kill the president. And so this is a so great, that, you can tell a great story here about... Yeah. yeah, back back Cyril because this is what he's up against, and only with your support can he truly win the day and free the country from the evil of Jacob Zuma. And here you've got Arthur Fraser coming with the like sneaky sly stuff with the smear campaign, and you've got the really aggro dudes who've been assassinating one another in KZN getting ready to assa assassinate Ramaphosa. And I must say, I'm a patriot. If someone tries to kill the president, I'd like to get in the way and stop them. Um, that's yes. just not acceptable. Uh, you you vote <laughs> yes, your president out if you don't like what they're doing. You do not kill presidents. No, um, precisely. Um, besides, not just, I mean, also from a selfish point of view, it is uh, political assassinations are basically one of the worst things that can happen to your country. It almost always causes absolute horror. Uh, no one thinks anymore. Like, you think the Amber Heard Johnny Depp trial was wild. Just wait until you live in a country <laughs> where a president has been assassinated. Yeah, and I suppose yeah. some people are probably old enough to. Anyway, so I think that it's uh, that's the spin I would try and put on it is that you know this if you ever had doubt that there was faction fighting in the ANC that had the capacity to take out Ramaphosa, if you ever listened to Gabriel say things like Vladimir Putin and Ramaphosa are both immovable objects because they are twice as popular as the parties that they represent, and the alternatives to those parties just don't have any realistic prospect of taking over them uh you're gonna be you, which was true in 2019 you're gonna be in this position where where this is a great pitch for the anc um that being said well yeah this is, is this yeah. is why this is why i said i don't think this is anything but a disaster because as far as i can tell and this is i think what's important is is at least perception is there might, in fact, be something there. Uh, I don't trust Arthur Fraser, and I haven't looked into it. But I think what's important here is the perception. As long as Ramaphosa remains a guy who is completely without sin, that argument that he is the true freedom fighter fighting for the good ANC is a, very, is a much stronger, much more believable one. But the moment it becomes, well, look... You know, nothing he's done is as bad as you immediately begin to lose a lot of steam on that. And so you, you realize that? how bony arsed Ramaphosa is. He doesn't right. have Robin Island credentials. He doesn't have right. any struggle credentials other than the fact that he ate camp. You know, he like part of the reason that he's so cornered 
is that his career up to 1994 is epitomized by fly fishing with Rolf Mayer at the point after <laughs> Boy Batong when uh, the ANC has sort of won the argument because everyone believes that there's a third force, everyone who's in power in America and and in South Africa, not in power in South Africa, but everyone. All of those applying independent pressure believe that there's a third force responsible for um, any sort of quote-unquote black-on-black violence. Ramaphosa sits in the position of just being, in a way, the message boy uh, when the anti is already through the actions of much more intelligent and uh, dynamic and ambitious people kind of secured a very strong bargaining position. And out of that bargaining position, Ramaphosa uh, finds himself best placed to go into business and make lots of money. Like, what does that really say about what the insiders in the ANC thought about him? And if you go back and look at what Mark Gifford is writing through Tabo and Becky, if you look back at the... I'm trying to remember where the... Anyway, the the sort of inter R. W. Johnson. If you look at the the accounts of the internal faction fighting in the ANC, also Mulesi and Becky, in the in the nineteen nineties, Ramaphosa is a candidate, and he's he's not the chosen heir, either to succeed Mandela or to succeed Mandela's successor, for various reasons, including. The fact that his accomplishments in the struggle just don't seem all that impressive is basically the point that I'm trying to make. The reason he came so long down the list and not only came long down the list, but had to find himself best placed to perform outside of politics and inside of business is that his skills were better placed for business than for politics. His skills were always to be a nice guy in the room, to be offensive to nobody, to... Um, seem like someone who'd be good at smoothing over rough corners. And the scandal speaks to exactly the worst sides of his best qualities. Ramaphosa, the unifier and the peacemaker, that sounds wonderful. And so you think, well, hold on. Are you making peace yeah. by... Who are you making peace between? <laughs> Yes, are you are you are you concealing? You like okay? Fat Christmas dinner went down really well, yeah. Because you're you, the you guy know. who saw that the that the teenage nephew beat up the gogo the on Christmas Eve and stole her money to go and get drunk, and you're the one who kept it all quiet and told gogo, "Look, I'll give you a new car if you just don't make an issue out of this on Christmas Day." Dude, yeah, no that's... one hears about that and thinks, "Oh, well done." Who is the Who is the great mediator and peacemaker in 1938? when uh, Czechoslovakia was dismembered by the Nazis. It was Mussolini. Yeah. <laughs> what a wonder, you know? <laughs> so Give that guy not, a bell. Not always a great <laughs> position to be in is the peacemaker. And I think that, you know, this scandal, covering up a crime in order to keep the household happy, like somehow he managed to completely hold his private life apart from the public life in insofar as... In the build-up to the the 2017 campaign, the, the the guys who thought they really had Ramaphosa made leaked the story about how 
he had been philandering and then managed to, you know, between money and charm, make everything okay. And that seemed to be like, you know, this is what you can expect this guy to do um, going forward. And that's not very principled and great. Let's rather go. But in South Africa, we just have not had and are not ready to have a personal scandal issue like that. You can you can potentially be like poisoning your ex-wife or being poisoned by her. It's like it's all very egoly and exciting. It's not changing votes yet. Um, I think because there's something interesting about how private norms and public norms interrelate. Uh, the and and it's not just in the ANC, by the way. In the DA, there's plenty of material that in other countries would have completely tanked political careers of people that yeah. are. They're doing very well because that's just right. not where we are, and it's kind of sophisticated, are, <laughs> kind of whatever. The DA doesn't uh, has had you know as corruption here and there, but by far its biggest problem that really hasn't been focused on is it's got sex scandals and people. It's sex scandals. Or, They've only had one big one that's blown up, and that was um, uh, the MEC who got fired recently by Alan Windy, uh, specifically because he was accused of harassing. Yeah, harassment, like if, okay, if you're in the DA and you are sexually abusing people, then that's what it takes to cross the line. But just straight up just cheating on your wife, it's like. Yeah, no, that, that's, that's just like par for the course, unfortunately. <laughs> okay, so that's the society we live in. So the 2017 play didn't work. Also, the society we live in cares about payback the money, cares about reported to the cops, cares about the distinction between vigilante justice and um, and and going to the police. And I do think that there's a hardcore of Ramaphosa supporters that no matter what are going to stick with him. I think that there's a hardcore of South Africans who think the cops are so crap, you ought to be beating up the criminals yourself. You ought to be kidnapping them, torturing them, and figuring out what they did with your money yourself. But there are a lot of South Africans who think, well, even if that's the reality we live in today, that's not the ideal that we want. And the president's supposed to be setting the example of doing better. Right. And and him in particular, he is the guy who's supposed to be the bright new future that we're heading towards. He is supposed to be the shining light on the hill. He is not supposed to be just like the rest of us. He's not muck. like Trump, right? Trump, right. if this happened with Trump, oh my word. No okay. Who cares? <laughs> That's like his whole he only did this once. that he's like he's like a dirty schmucky guy who just happens right. to be a billionaire president. No, Ramaphosa is Saint Cyril. He's so I don't know. This is the theory. We will see how it gets played out on two fronts. The one front is the facts, yeah. and the other front is the I, perception. I, I, I do think the facts side is very uh, is ultimately very important though because. I think the kind of people who will be swayed by this are exactly the kind of people who are really going to decide based on the facts here. And it's it's going to drive a stake into the heart of his image if the facts come out badly for him on this one. But right. he does have the strong advantage of having opponents with not a lot of credibility at the moment. <laughs> okay, so here's the interesting thing about Arthur Fraser. I... The funny thing about history is it just is the case that the, some of the most important people, no one remembers their names. I remember the name Alvin Reese, and he's only one of the dudes who were involved. I also remember the name Raymond Lowe. But Alvin Reese started the investigation, which resulted 
in a series of publications that came known came to be known as Mildergate. These were the investigations that uh, found that the Nats had created a slush fund, which had been used, amongst other things, to buy a newspaper in Hope, Arkansas, uh, whence Bill Clinton. <laughs> because they correctly guessed that he'd be the next president. They thought it'd be nice to own his hometown's newspaper. I mean, the Nats, like amazing genius, amazing genius, also very, very terrible, very, very stupid. <laughs> Alvin follows these trucks out of uh, the printing shop of the Citizen newspaper, the first English newspaper, to say that apartheid's a good idea <laughs> in the 1980s, and finds that they, you know, go to these dump dumping zones and and they're just unloading like millions of newspapers into the garbage heap. And thus begins an investigation to show that this newspaper is also sort of secretly being funded by the Nats, and and it just it's it, again it's the kind of thing if you look at the amount of money that went into that slush fund, it's so minuscule. It's like not a lot. But there was the Nats, these like Calvinist anti-communist, you know, like like thick moustache, stick up your bum kind of disciplined dudes. The idea of secretly squirreling away money so that you could pay for effectively theatrical performances of the news was a skander on unfarbar. And it uh, and meant that Cornel Mulder, who was certain to be the next president, was not the next president or the next uh, executive leader of the non-ceremonial kind, that P.W. Buert's political career was ended. And it really did open the way for F.W. de Klerk. Not immediately, but without that, you don't get F.W. de Klerk. With that, you do get F.W. de Klerk and, uh, and an interpartheid in the way that it happened, which which is much better than the alternative. And right. and and that those journalists and editors and those guys who are just going around doing such like there's it doesn't take a lot of skill, right? In a way. It just takes like, can you see something? Will you you recognize that it's interesting and important and just stick to it and try and take penetrate the the veil of secrecy. Take an important fact, put it in the public square let the world do the rest. Very important stuff. Arthur Fraser on Jacques Poe's account is the dude who does that to Tabo and Becky. Tabo and Becky's hanging out with Bulalani and Nuka on the phone. nuka has got prima facie evidence that Jacob Zuma is as corrupt as uh, a Jacob Zuma. There's <laughs> a question... To coin a phrase, there's a question about like um, when to arrest him. If I remember rightly, Becky's actually asking him to do it a little bit later because he thinks um, it, it'll be it won't seem as harsh if it comes later. It won't seem as politically motivated. The president ultimately is the chief of the you know muscular side of government has the prerogative to say these kinds of things. Uh, much like, by the way, an NPA can have can say, you know, please arrest this person tomorrow morning rather than tonight, because if you go in tonight uh, into the into the ghetto, you know, the the police are likely to be attacked, and there could be a, a, right. an exchange of gunfire more than people. Yeah. So don't do it. The president likewise can say, dude, arrest this guy next week, because if you do it now, there could be riots. But if you do it next week, we manage it. 
that's the argument that they make. I'm not saying that that argument's true. I'm just saying in principle it could be true. The point is that the tapes get leaked. And on on on, on Jog Poe's account, the main the main protagonist in this who sort of confesses to him more or less explicitly is Mo Sheikh. The brother of Shabir Sheikh and Mo gets positions in the intelligence agency, but Arthur Fraser is the on his version is is the Mo Sheikh is like the messenger boy. Mo Sheikh is like the Gabriel Cross and, and Arthur is like <laughs> the France Crenier. <laughs> and I really do think like if you've listened to the show, you probably do know who France like I think Arthur Fraser is someone to be taken seriously. I think mm. that he is intelligent. I don't think that he's someone you can just buy off. I think that he's got a, a gestalt, a way that he wants the world to be. Well, he's clearly not someone you can buy off because in some ways, yeah. Cyril put him into some positions of important, even though he was so strongly associated with the Zuma faction. He gets, uh, uh, he, he makes the, I think it was the, the ultimate decision to give Zuma medical parole. And uh, then he goes on and Correct. brings these charges, which demonstrate perhaps that Cyril's not the grandmaster strategist that he's been made out to be. <laughs> right. So, I mean, I do think that he, I think that Arthur Fraser has subsequently been removed as the head of uh, the, the commissioner of as the, correctional of the, services. Yeah, as the yeah. Commissioner of Congressional Services and the head of the State Security Agency. So, and I think that that's part of the idea here is that he's finally been cut out of the, he's, he's finally been frozen out. And so now he's ready to come back with a vengeance. Um, maybe that's right. I don't want to discount the possibility that this is, look, maybe Cyril Ramaphosa really is a saint. Maybe there really is nothing to be had on him. And and this is just a truly desperate ploy to try and cook something up. You know, on the other side of things, you have at the time to defame Bulalani and Muka, Ranjani Munasami, I think it was, saying that he's an apartheid-era spy and mm -hmm. naming his spy number and saying he's an awful dude. And then two weeks later, some lady comes forward and from Cape Town or something and says, you know, actually, I was an apartheid-era spy, and that was my spy number, so he couldn't have had the same spy number because everyone had their own <laughs> spy number. And by that stage, it didn't matter. I remember years later, it's instead of, like, this is all 2003. I remember 2004, maybe 2002. I remember in grade nine, which is at least one year, maybe two years later, hanging out with guys and they were still calling Bulalani Nguka an appointed era spy and still saying that, you know, this is evidence that pe people are going off to Zuma because the white monopoly capitals running the show, et cetera, et cetera. I couldn't believe it because it had been so clearly debunked. Um, right. But there, there it was, the sort of more race nationalists of my boarding school buddies kind of believed it. And in some ways, who's to blame them because Ranjani Munsami's career was still going and, uh, and and although the facts had been debunked, uh, you know, other Nuka had been removed. And you know, then there's like, you know, the next round is Vusi Piccoli versus Jackie Celebi. There's just there's a series of exchanges under Tabo and Becky where where you're asked to pick a side 
between you know, someone's making an allegation and someone's on the defensive side and, and and you're asked to think like is this a credible or completely phony hoaxy illegitimate allegation and trust starts to fray and and people have different ways of dealing with this and that is a really good way to build up to a sort of zuma presidency and and a Zuma presidency is the ultimate way to build up to a Ramaphosa presidency. Both of them sort of being defined by a messianic idea that like trust has been so greatly withered that really we just need someone whose personality is going to hold us together, whose charisma is going to take <laughs> us forward and nation build and unify and so on. A true hero. A true hero. And Zuma's, Zuma was the kind of authentic Zulu true hero, kind yeah, of a man you know, of the people. Skin, man of the people. Ramaphosa is like the like ultimate elite hero, you know. This guy really right, does so know his single malt cognacs and has these wonderful cattle and 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 can tell his Rowan from his black sable from his golden wildebeest. And and uh there at Palapala, he supposedly has four million dollars. So part of the thing that I find about interesting about the story is not just the fact that Arthur Fraser is the one to bring forward the charges, and I think that this guy if he's done it once before, he's taken out a president once before. He has taken out a president once before. I do think that means you should take him seriously. He could be wrong. He could be making it up. But people who are laughing this off, and I know some of our friends and colleagues, like, dude, I think you've got to take this seriously because it's Arthur Fraser. I agree. I agree. The dude, the dude's an operator. He knows what he's doing. Um, and, and then the second thing is, I've heard rumors about this through the years. And this thing does date back to 2020. And there's something about the fact that the Ramaphosa side has admitted that this occurred and that it occurred two years ago. So on their version, if this was done above board, there better be there has to be a very serious paper trail. Like this is a two-year-old thing. So the so the the bank the money that was retrieved must have been banked the money that was lost must have been declared like there's no ways the way that this is reported if you if so read the Amabungani reports maybe that's what I'll make my recommendation you'll get one impression read Arthur Fraser's the the one page of the affidavit that's sort of been circulating you'll get the same impression read the newspapers. Whether it's for or against, whether it's Sunday World against or Sunday Independent for Fraser and against Ramaphosa. And you'll get the sense that this is like something that happened yesterday and, and that a lot of it turns on the fact that it happened so recently. That on Ramaphosa's side, it's like, well, the money was there, but it was taken before we could do the thing and it just happened the other day. So who's to say who, what happened? But we'll, you know, we'll find, we'll, we'll be able to show our case. It's just also fresh that it's difficult to do. And on the other side, it's like, you know, we've just discovered this thing. It just happened five minutes ago and we figured it out now. And, you know, this president. Blah, 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 blah. There's, there isn't this like very clear sense that what you're dealing with here is old news. And the reason Amabungani can do it is because they're not trying to make out like the anti-Ramaposa crowd wants to, that, that Arthur Fraser is a saint. Dude, you need to take this guy seriously because he's an effective not saint. <laughs> yes, he's the kind of guy who takes down presents, as you said. <laughs> Not because he's fabulously wonderful, um, right? This, so, 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 so they're like they're. Amabagani's down with saying 
The president created this weakness. Arthur Fraser was aware of it. Now he's in a compromised position. Now he's exploiting it. Pulling the trigger. That doesn't um, mean anyone gets off the hook. And as a, and as one of our colleagues pointed out, you know, like the 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 Emmanuelu David, who was in Namibia and arrested in the two in 2020 and was involved, you know, like part of the allegation is that Vili Root uh, Ramaphosa's sort of chief henchman is like involved in in uh, you know kidnapping and torture and applying pressure and all kinds of things. And getting Namibian authorities to illegally change their laws so that this guy can be released and so that acts of criminality and exchanges of money and all kinds of things across that border can be ignored and kept under the carpet. All of these kinds of things are quite serious and international level crimes that are disturbing. And the DA is going after the Saab, was trying to get the Saab to go after Ramaphosa in terms of declaring large amounts of foreign currency. You can only have this amount. You know, Mzilikwa Africa, who you, you've got it. I'm, if I can just say one note of caution on the Sunday independence side. So, you know, Sunday World is like very pro Ramaphosa on this. They're like, you know, this poor guy is being threatened with death. He's being attacked from all sides. Sunday independence is like, ah, oh, Ramaphosa is being finally caught out to be the sort of nincompoop that he is. Sunday Times has sort of got op eds that contradict themselves within themselves and uh, reports that uh, go this way and that way. You got to be a little bit careful of him in Kaziwa Africa because he was part of the uh, road road rogue capture idea, and and the big worry I think for anti Ramaphosa guys is that this is a is a state kept is a rogue unit SARS rogue unit story where people are completely inventing something um, in order to try and malign malign in that instance Praveen Gordon. Uh, that's 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 really unfair and and ends up backfiring and it kind of did backfire in him Zilakaziwa Africa's face he was the most famous South African journalist and best paid at the time at Sunday Times and he's lost his job and he's resurrecting himself elsewhere uh, and I'm not saying that makes him wrong I'm just saying that like in the fairness of full disclosure it's something to be aware of there are there is the spectrum of of responses and and I think you're right Nick that that the facts are actually going to matter because the kinds of people that really sit at the core of Ramaphosa's support base, the swing don't the swing care about the, the, base. the swing voters. They don't care about facts about policy, unfortunately, but they do care about facts on corruption and personal and personal cleanliness in that sense. So I think they are going to matter. I think it's going to be a huge battle going forward. Keep your mind open, genuinely open. This could be a whole lot of, um, you know, Ramaphosa could just be really unlucky here. Um, or, or he could be complicit in in a very dastardly deed. But I think the interesting thing is, like, even if you sort of try and put from your mind the the saw the 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 the, the kidnapping and the torture, all of the stuff that's not really been mainly reported on the Namibian, Namibian cross border problems. Just the possibility that Ramaphosa had more than 50,000 rands worth of foreign exchange. Like, you know, Arthur Fraser's affidavit says $4 million. Ramaphosa's um, spokesperson says, you know, we can see that there was an amount of money, um, but when, but it was much less than that. It's got to be so much less that it's less than 50,000 rand. If it's more than 50,000 rand, there's an exchange rate issue. There's an exchange, there's an exchange controls issue, which puts him in breach of the law and the 
And the crazy thing is like the UK has just gone through this mad discussion about what happens if your chief executive breaks the law, like a parking ticket. You've technically broken the law at the same time. You're the head of law enforcement. How do you deal with that kind of, it seems like a paradox. It's, it's, it's sort of the 21st century equivalent of the paradox of, of uh, medieval Europe where the thought was the king, the king's word is the truth. So what if the king says that the sun rises in the, west and sets in the east and some countries went with well in that case that we've just changed the lexicon and that's true uh you know if the king says two plus two is five then that means five is the number that comes after three <laughs> and in other places they say no well the king can be wrong about some things um and we don't really have a good way to deal with that but i, I suppose tacitly we all admit Tacitly in Parliament, we admit, and externally, we, we're quite clear about the fact that if the king really goes mad like that, he needs to be replaced. Um, so the, the the modern age version, America's suffering it, UK suffering it, we'd be suffering it too, is like, what if he's breaking a law where you think this is not so severe? If he had 70,000 rand of dollars, he sold one cow come on, no one really thinks that's against the law. You're supposed to declare it immediately. He was going to do it on Monday. They sold the car on Friday But afternoon. he's a busy guy. He's a busy guy. You know, what do you do about that? It's like Boris Johnson having a drink on the, on the balcony. I think that very important factor here is the background context. Is the ANSI step-aside rule Parties don't come up with these step-aside rules and advertise them all the time, and they're not sort of part of public discourse all the time, unless there's this huge, mutually understood <laughs> background of corruption. So this is part of what happens when you are twice as popular as your party. You're the 60% guy. They're the 30% guys. You are the Tsar. They are the enemy. The whole way Russian politics works is that the Tsar protects us from politicians because the Tsar yes. is different. The whole yes. idea is that Ramaphosa is he's chosen by God. not like everyone. He's chosen by God. He's not like the rest. He doesn't do this, this sort of Pusa Friday kind of half-assed respect of the law thing. He doesn't do vigilantism. We can do vigilantism. We plebs can spit on the floor and beat our wives. But Ramaphosa, you know, I don't know. I do think that he is in a, is in a scary position. In terms of people of of hypocrisy, of being on the wrong side of hypocrisy, he's been on the right side of hypocrisy in such a big way since 2017. He's been famous and beloved as a liar. You know, he's had to lie all the way through the Zuma presidency, pretend he supports Zuma when really he just wants to stab Zuma in the back, because that's what he needed to do in order to bide his time, in order to get power, without splitting the ANC, without causing chaos, without inviting a situation where someone like the EFF takes over. Ramaphosa had to sit there quietly and say, oh, and he's doing well, when he knew it was doing badly. Then when the, when the power fails, he has to say, oh, I'm so surprised. Someone's, I'm shocked. Someone's been stealing the money. He has to do all of this theatrical performance because he's a saint, because he's a truly good man. He must, he must look over the dirty deeds of mere mortals. That hypocrisy, and every society must have hypocrisy. Every person must have hypocrisy. That has worked so in his favor. I think that there's a chance that it works against him here in a way that's devastating to the ANC. And, and I think that it's going to be very interesting to see how it plays out. The strongest arguments against these allegations, in my mind, is that they are so good 
they so perfectly take the body politi- body politics sort of psychological what is Ramaphosa's weak point kind of thing. It's so obviously is Achilles here. It's so what you would script. <laughs> right. Um, if they're, if they're so likely to be scripted, they have to be scripted. <laughs> anyway, I mean, I think I do. I think it's fascinating, and I think that every single person I've spoken to about this has kind of wanted to dodge the topic. Mm. Has been like, and I think it's because people don't know what to make out of it, and and South Africans are not used to look. I don't know. I want to see more evidence. If this does go the way it's looking like it's going, it's going to change the country. The ANC is dead. Dude, if this, if Fraser is right, if he's got the video footage and that video footage comes out and gets leaked, it's going to change the course of this country as much as, as it did last time. It's going to change the next decade. And if he doesn't have it, then, you know, like there's a version where Ramaphosa's paid him to put up these allegations. It's two years old. He's like, you know, whatever. You know, it is the perfect. It's the perfect distraction. It's like let's not debate yes. policy. Let's get stuck for the next two years in a debate about whether Ramaphosa had four million dollars hidden in the slots of his table and chairs and whether his <laughs> what's her name, Floriana, uh, the Namibian maid. Why does he have Namibian maids? There's all these like details. Got a white farm manager and Namibian stuff. Like Ramaphosa is really <laughs> not. <laughs> anyway, but it's like you get lost in all these like you know it becomes like an Amber Heard Don- Johnny Depp thing. Right, right. The auntie does really well out of that. Uh, and I and I think people are not used to withholding judgment and saying, look, very titillating at the moment, very exciting, huge stakes. They could hardly be higher. Um, because the broader context, the deeper context, is a country in which the rate of youth that are not in employment, education, and training has actually gone up in from the end of last year to this year. So the overall employment numbers look a little bit nice, but like if you focus on on that sector, which really is the most future defining, it's really bad. GDP numbers are bad. Inflation numbers are climbing. Everything about the sort of meat and potatoes defining constraints on on lucking upon a bit of happiness by getting the chance to do add some value and, and do something important and meaningful in your own life. Like it's all so limited that people are bound to be more upset more and more public figures turning against the ANC, you know, more and more odds of of that anger no longer being fueled to the like, well, you need to do more loyalty, more same, more more chance of of major bifurcation and splits. Evidence of that coming out of the by elections, limited but suggestive. You know, there's there, there it's just as you said, they're in they're the ANC is in deep deep doo-doo uh, in the background. And that does that does just heighten the stakes of this, but that doesn't mean we need to make a judgment about whether it's one way or the other. That's my, I guess that is my my main point, is that, you know, the, the, there are the characters insofar as I can appraise them. Look, Frazier the did us a, a, he did us a solid by ensuring that he made very bold claims about the kind of evidence he had up front. And so as a result, if they don't come out, we know that he's talking rubbish. 
And if they do come out, well, 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 then we have something to look at. And that'll be fascinating. Uh, but let's call it to a close there because we're heading up to that two-hour mark. So uh, I'm going to start with my recommendations. Um, I was recently forced, not quite at gunpoint, but there was a bit of menace in the in the in the forcing. Um, I have a, a weekly Friday night with my friends, and uh, one of them was very very pro. Shall we say she uh, she had picked a, t a team in the Johnny Depp Amber Heard thing, and she was very much Team Johnny, and she uh, insisted that considering his court victory, we had to watch the first Pirates of the Caribbean movie again. And it's actually such a great film. The score is amazing. The, 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 the performance by Depp is really great. Uh, Kira Knightley is really attractive. So is Orlando Bloom. It's like got good looking people. It's a simple, pretty simple story. It's got lots of silly moments in it. Still holds up, still enjoyable, I think, for a wide range of ages if you kind of like something quite silly and light. And I, it it has a perfect ending. It just all sort of wraps up in a neat boat. I'm kind of annoyed by it, seeing it again, because it reminds me of the way they took the series in the next couple of movies, and they made it, I think, far too over the top. But I really like the first movie. It's it's just a good light watch, and it's a fun time. Yeah, no, the third one, whichever was the most depressing one, that was the best one, because... The the one you're talking about, you mash together the plots of the second and the third and your your spiel earlier. But uh yeah, that the, yes. the thing you were talking about of going to land every seven years was in the ending of the third one. Okay, amazing. He is my oddly enough, my I had sort of family dinner on Friday. And my nephew, who's about 10 years old, just couldn't stop humming the Pirates of the Caribbean soundtrack. <laughs> Hans Zimmer and John Williams are the two, are the two sort of yeah. masters. Composition. Uh, also, masters. Hans, Hans Zimmer's Dune soundtrack that he made for the movie, what was it, last year? Was it really last year? It or came out this year. year but it was, yeah. yeah. It's also great. Um, but the Pirates of the Caribbean one is also fantastic oh okay i like that I, I i like that recommendation i was going to recommend um a story by pj o'rourke but we didn't cover that topic so let me instead recommend two things i really want to recommend the johannesburg philharmonic orchestra for anyone who's in joburg their winter season is starting on thursday they're going to play it's like four weeks, four Thursdays, each one a different um, a different uh, repertoire, I guess. Other than the first one, I'm the, the first one is Mozart and Beethoven, Beethoven's Seventh Symphony, which is my favorite um, because the Adagio movement, like before Fleetwood Mac had the one-note solo in the chain, uh, where the guitarist just plays one note <laughs> for a minute. Oh, the chain is such a great song. <laughs> it was Beethoven with the one note, seventeen minute adagio movement. <laughs> ba, 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 ba. Um. Anyway, I'm just I'm a huge fan of that depressing stuff. Um. The next for 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 wholesome people, you really should go this Thursday. 
because it's the only one in which there will be no Russian composers. Unfortunately, the JPO, <laughs> much like the ANC, is down with the evil people. And so in the later weeks, there'll be Tchaikovsky and Prokofiev and uh, Rachmaninoff. So if you want to keep your soul pure, go on Thursday. Uh, <laughs> I'm shaking my head very disapprovingly of your snark here. <laughs> okay, okay, um, but I okay. That, that's my main recommendation because I don't think that I have recommended them before. But just in case I have, let me also recommend. Um, oh, bugger, Nick! I was going to. I was going to. Recommend something else. Oh, yeah. The thing, the the other main thing that we wanted to talk about on the show, um, but we didn't. But it's very good that we didn't uh, focus on it. But you know, this week was quite a busy week for us on the campaign side of the IRR because we got to go to the union buildings to hand over our petition to the president to just block the EEB, the Employment Equity Amendment Bill, this new doubling down on BEE. Uh, I think it's really. I think it's really predictable in a certain way and really sad that although South Africa has gotten to this place, it's it's just in the best place that it's ever been racially, in a way. In terms of income distributions not being such that taste-based racists are in a strong position to be able to lock each other out of the market because there's just lots of rich people of all races lots of trained doctors and engineers, lots of professors, lots of uh, very powerful, you know, politicians that obviously aren't white, but, you know, there's a lot of, there's, I was telling Nick that before the show today, I went to the Linden Market in Emerentia, and I did just, I hate bragging about these moments because it's, it's, it makes it seem like you need to justify it. And in my own life, I never feel like that. But I, I guess in the public square, sort of speaking to people that I've never met, I do think it's worth saying South Africa keeps bubbling up these moments that are just like obvious, in-your-face, physical instantiations of, of what the whole idea was. And there we were at the linen market uh, of, of the Rainbow Nation, of, of it being delightful. For, for us to be a country that is that's really not fixated on race. And you know what? When you're not trying to force it, it just turns out that you've got these like wonderfully diverse groups. And I, I, I thought one of the nice things about the Linden Market today was there's this band playing there in Emerentia and everything's overpriced. and ugh. Anyway, but there's like a lot of rich people of a lot of races who can afford to go <laughs> buy sort of 120 Rand sandwiches. And there's this band and they happen to all be black dudes playing sort of guitar and digital, you know, drum kits and uh, mishmashing indie rock music with uh, hip lines from quieter songs that I can remember from my deep youth. And it's, it's, it's delightful and, and, and very mixed crowd watching the, the, the crowd dancing happens to only be black and Indian, which in my view, is is like that's the combo to really blow your socks off if you want to look at the world from like it's 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 never going to happen we're never going to get a long perspective 
you know, just, 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 I wish you could see what I saw. Um, and then they, um, they just play so beautifully. The crowd won't stop and they encourage them to play some more and then play some more. And then eventually they've got to do a little swan song to let it go. And there's like a bonga bonga line with these like Indian and black dudes. And by this stage, white and colored dudes sort of dancing around in a circle behind a guy who's holding up a white plastic chair as the sort of lead totem of the bonga bonga line. Um, and, and the song that they're singing is that Andrea Bocelli Italian time to say goodbye but the other bits were a combination of like zulu and italian it's just it reminded me of yovel 15 years ago when like i'm a piano is now like the latest genre but like dude back in the day man in town dudes are so keen to embrace all kinds of sounds east from everywhere because because when you're when you're enthusiastic about the deliciousness of human beings, you know, there's like, there's no, there's really no boundary not to be crossed and, and drawn from and enjoyed. Uh, and, and that felt like a picture of something to throw up on, 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 in a way I felt like embittered by my work. Cause I thought I'm, I'm 99% enjoying this moment. And part of me wants to snarkily take a video of this and throw it in the face of these, of these, <laughs> bigots who think that race hustlers and race merchants yeah if you don't characters yeah these poison dwarfs are like if you don't force people together they'll never hang out together and i was like and i wanted to call it hashtag down market because this is not the santon market this is not the bryanston market this is not the like parkmore flea market this is like overpriced but like cheaper than those ones and even within the bounds of reasonability <laughs> Yeah, it's only thirty rand entrance. And before that, I had been at the at the Linden Club Irish Club, which also has a flea market, where I bought like four macarapas for one hundred and twenty rand, thirty rand each. Dude, yes. If you want to see the Rainbow Nation for real, go to the market that's free to enter, and it's like people selling old screwdrivers. Yeses. Woo! Indian colored, black, white. Like rubbing their hands together, talking about the petrol price. <laughs> human beings, human, not happily beings. Uh, really, very, very good. So, your, rec your recommendation is markets and non racialism, which is something I can totally get behind. No, <laughs> You can't go to those markets because well you can go to the linen one, but it's but it's sort of closing. So instead, I recommend um since since that one's over that that you go to the JPO because it's also a little bit like that. Anyway, with that, um I hope that you all keep the flag of liberty flying. Grr, grr.